Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. In this episode of Beyond the Bump, we chat to Jessica Staines from Koori Curriculum. We talk about what racism is, how to discuss racism and race with our children, and how to ensure our children are educated and respect Indigenous Australians and their culture. We acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection of land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Yeah, and I just wanted to also add um, where I am, uh, which is up on dark and young country on the New South Wales Central Coast. I like to pay my respects to the traditional owners here and pay my respects to my ancestors, the Wiradjuri people. Um, my family originally is from Wollongong Park, so I like to pay my respects to my elders, both past, present and emerging. So we ourselves, um, during this time, we're learning and we're, we're listening. We understand that talking about race can be an extremely sensitive topic to a lot of people. We hope this conversation can be a helpful source of information on, in, on educating ourselves and our children about race and racism. We also don't want this chat to be exclusive and to assume that all of our listeners are white. But in the past couple of weeks, we've really come to realise that white parents are the ones who have had the privilege to avoid this topic. And parents of colour have unfortunately probably already had to start these discussions of racism without much choice. Jess, would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Hi everyone, my name is Jessica Staines. I'm a Baradjuri woman and my family originally is from Molong and Parks in New South Wales. I was brought up on Gadigal country, which is in Sydney, and I now live on Dark and Young country, which is on the New South Wales central coast. I am an early childhood teacher and in the last five years I've developed the Koori Curriculum, which is an Aboriginal early childhood consultancy and the collective, the Aboriginal Early Childhood Collective with um, another person. So we travel around Australia um, supporting educators to develop culturally inclusive programs, connect with their local Aboriginal community and support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families to access early learning services. Amazing. And we've seen on your website that you have a podcast too. We'd love to link that for our listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about what you discuss in your podcast? Yeah. So I have a podcast, which is just called Educator Yarns. And we interview educators, both Aboriginal and non-Indigenous from different communities around Australia, where they share with us how they are including Aboriginal perspectives in their program. And there is no blanketed approach to how we include Aboriginal perspectives in our curriculum. There are overarching principles that we try and follow. But I think to see the diversity in the ways that this work can be done is really empowering and to hear the voices of educators that are at that grassroots level that are actually doing the work, I think is 
very relatable for educators to hear those stories. And we also um, interview Aboriginal community members to get their perspectives of what they would like to be seeing, um, you know, early learning services, you know, fostering in their community as well. So, Mm. yeah. Incredible. Fantastic. Australians were understandably outraged by the recent events that have taken place in the US over the past few weeks, but the situation isn't really any better for our Indigenous population here. Can you please tell us a little bit about the oppression that our first Australians experience on a regular basis? Yeah, look, I think I just wanted to preface this with saying that whilst I identify as being an Aboriginal woman, I also have white privilege because I am quite fair mm-hmm. and therefore that's, and I think that's why there's been such an emphasis in the Australian context anyway of the Black Lives Matter. And that saying is not new to our context here at all. And it, it's, it's quite different to say, you know, Aboriginal lives matter. Of course, everybody's lives matter. Mm. Um, however, the oppression and marginalisation, discrimination and racism that, you know, I experience as a fairer Aboriginal woman is really different to Aboriginal people who are darker and identifiably. But when we say black, black is more than just the skin colour anyway. It's black is a way that we, a word that we use to describe our culture. Um, So there is, you know, there's sayings that people will say, you know, fair skin black fella or things like that, you know, like we, we use the word black um, in a, in a different context, mm-hmm. but I also um, I, I don't want to be speaking on behalf of people where that issue doesn't affect it doesn't affect me in the same way. Does that make of sense? Of course, yeah. it absolutely so I think, does. I, like I want to give you some context, but I also don't want anyone assuming that um, these are lived experiences or things yeah. that affect me personally because I really think it's important at, at, at different stages, perhaps in your podcast, that you get somebody on that. That, that this is their life experience, yeah. you know, because um, it's not mine. So I guess in Australia generally what we see and what, you know, your listeners will probably be the most familiar with is the stolen generation, you know, mm-hmm. where Aboriginal children were forcibly removed from their families and this was done under various acts. The latest one was the Protectorate Act and it occurred all the way up until 1969 under that act. So it wasn't because these children were at risk of significant harm. It was a very Darwinist-type belief where government believed that Aboriginal people were lowered down on the evolutionary ladder and it was about, you know, trying to biologically control and assimilate um, Aboriginal people into the mainstream white dominant culture within within Australia. And then what we saw since then as a result of those removals is the, the effects of intergenerational trauma, that the trauma experience was so severe by children that were removed um, and that was highlighted really strongly in the 1996 Bringing Them Home report, which was the national inquiry into the stolen generations, that it has you know, severely affected the ability for their children and their children's children to thrive. Um, And we see that, you know, lack of education, high incarceration rates, domestic violence, you know, poor mental health, lower life expectancy, high child mortality, these are all things that really affect 
Aboriginal people today and that's highlighted for you in the Closing the Gap report which was released each year since two, since the 2008 apology that Kevin Rudd gave on behalf of the, mm. the Australian government. So you can you can you can access both of these documents online, the Bring Them Home report and the Closing the Gap report to see those statistics and what has occurred. And what you'll see is that in our state, so in New South Wales, Aboriginal children are eleven times more likely to be removed than any other child yeah. in New South Wales. One in six Aboriginal children are removed in New South Wales and those numbers effectively are a hundred times higher than what they ever were during the time of the stolen generation. So the problem is worse today than what it was back then and that's why you would have seen perhaps if you attended any of these protests because it also sheds light on other Aboriginal issues that are, you know, current affairs and issues that are happening in the Australian context. You know, slogans like sorry, sorry means you don't do it again because we see the next there, you know, community size, the next stolen generation coming through. Mm. Um, So what we know is that, you know, in the Northern Territory, every child in juvenile detention is Aboriginal. We know that whilst we're less than 3% of the population, we are 25% of the adult prison population and over 50% of the juvenile prison population. So Aboriginal children are more likely to end up in prison than what they are to finish high school. So these statistics are pretty damning, you know. And when I do, um, you know, my talks, I guess, you know, we do professional development workshops and so forth. I think, you know, Australians are aware of it to an extent, but they're not aware of the depth of it Mm. and and particularly the the current affairs and issues. And a lot of the time we, we see that educators Uh, They have like a form of white guilt. They feel somewhat responsible. And I feel that, you know, you don't know what you don't know. You know, you're not responsible Mm. for that. But once you do know, you have an ethical responsibility to do something about it. Um, And part of that, you know, for your, your listeners, like as families, it's about education, you know, and making sure that, you know, these children, you know, grow up in a more socially just world and make more socially just and equitable decisions um, and have respect for this country's First Nations people than what, you know, is currently seen politically anyway within Australia. Yeah, wow, because I knew it wasn't good enough when people said, oh, why do I have to say sorry? It was, you know, generations in the past that had done that. It's not my responsibility. But when you put it like that, as you say, it's it's no better now. So that statement's even less true than before knowing that information. Yeah, and look, that's quite common, you know, like there's a lot of people, particularly of like a younger generation, like what have I got to be sorry for? And for me, I think it's about empathy, isn't it? Like absolutely. if you said to me, like a family member just passed away, the first thing I would say to you is I'm sorry. Mm. You know, is there anything that I can do to help? I'm not saying that I've caused that, but I'm saying like as a human, as one human to another, Mm -hmm. I can tell that that is a loss and that would hurt and and I have empathy. Absolutely. You know, um, what we mean, but sorry. You've touched yeah. on the stolen generation. What are some other good starting points of Australian Indigenous history that are good to educate our kids and just as much ourselves on? I look, it depends on the age of your child yep. in early childhood, so birth to five. I don't believe in teaching the uh, your children at that age about the stolen generation um, because 
you know, it's not age appropriate, but I definitely think in primary school, normally when children get to year four, they're learning about Australian history at some point. And um, my foster daughter, when she was with us a few years ago, she was doing that. And, you know, the teacher is still, you know, using that false rhetoric, using words like colonisation, like the country wasn't colonised, we were invaded. So it's simple, you know, nuances like that that have, um, you know, a, a deeper meaning, I guess, so using correct terminology. But I think with early childhood, so birth to five, to me it's not so much about teaching about history, it's about celebrating you know, Aboriginal culture, it's something that we should all be proud of, you know, Aboriginal people, we're the oldest living culture in the world, older than the Romans and the Aztecs. And I think if that was true of any other country, it would be their greatest Mm. tourism campaign and slogan, you know, but here it's almost like it's brushed under the carpet. So I think it's about, you know, if you are a non-Indigenous family, making that effort to broaden your child's worldview and experiences with people of all diverse backgrounds and cultures, ethnicities, languages, genders from an early age. So it's not seen as taboo or exotic or um, different. So that's what I really encourage in early learning services is that everyone has had different relationships, experiences and opportunities and having those firsthand relationships, experiences is so important. So, you know, attending community events, getting out during NAIDOC week and reconciliation week once we're all out of ISO and it's safe (laughs) to do so um, and using that as an opportunity really to connect with community and, you know, make an effort to go to Aboriginal story times or things like that at, at libraries or play groups and, you know, so your children are amongst that from an early age. It's so true, just quickly, what you said about tourism, because I feel like when it's used to promote tourism in Australia, it's often with a negative impact on Indigenous Australians. For example, the way that Uluru is advertised to, to do, you know, walking tours and that kind of thing. When it when Australia does decide that they want to advertise Indigenous Australians, it's often in a negative way. I think in a negative way and a very like stereotypical way and it sort of our identities as First Nations people is very diverse and I think there's this belief that like all the real Aboriginal people are in the Northern Territory, in the outback, Aruluru, and not really looking at this, you know, young urban black culture that we have here in Australia as well and, you know, what does it mean to be an Aboriginal person living in an urban context. You know, like I think it's very... um... Well, let's talk about raising anti-racist children. And I want to just say that when we were were asking listeners questions and, and researching a little bit, I sort of started to think they're not born racist. They don't have any idea about colour and anything like that. So it is more about us um, understanding and educating them. But in your opinion, what is racism? I think that racism is when you think your ethnicity or culture is superior than somebody else's or that somebody else's is beneath you or inferior based, based on that. And I think that often it comes out as, you know, bias and discrimination and, and prejudice and bigotry those are all side effects, I guess, of racism. Yeah. Mm. 
And I think the past couple of weeks has really shone a spotlight on that because I would say before I'm definitely not a racist person, but was I acting as an anti-racist person? Well, no, probably not, but but not meaning to. And so I feel like I feel like a lot of people didn't consider themselves as racist, but now all of a sudden have thought, hold on a second, I should be anti-racist in this world. It's not good enough to just not be racist. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that Nessa Turnbull-Roberts, she's an amazing advocate for the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, what she says, it's about, like, you know, standing up on being on the right side of justice, you know, <laughs> like hmm. it's, um, you know, by being silent, you're enabling behaviours to continue. Yeah. Um, and I think there's many ways that you can be an advocate. You know, an advocate isn't always, you know, marching in a, you know, in a protest. Like that's that's one form of advocacy. But advocacy is also educating yourself and educating others around you because that's where we see those ripple effects and people's attitudes really begin to change. Yeah, and I think so many conversations have opened up, but it's they need to continue once this, you know, it's a movement, it's not a trend. And this is what a lot of people have said, you know, once we've done a few posts and it's been on the media for a few weeks, we don't just go back to normal and go, okay, well, that's fine, that's done now. Yeah, that's right. You touched a little bit on white privilege before when you were explaining that you're a fair-skinned Aboriginal woman. In your opinion, what is white privilege and do you think that it is prevalent in Australian society? Yeah, I think, look, it's definitely prevalent. It's something that I, you know, I didn't really understand until I started taking care of my foster daughter when she was much younger. And when we first began caring for her, you know, she's Aboriginal as well and she's much darker. And we, you know, went to Kmart and Target and Big W and I wanted to find a doll that looked like her. Hmm. And none of the dolls did. And none of the children's books had characters with dark skin like her. And she wasn't reflected on any of the TV shows or cartoons that we were watching on television. Or if there was a darker character, they were all, you know, often seen as like the evil or the sinister character. You know, even as far as like if we look at My Little Pony, you know, there's one black pony and it's a wicked pony, you know, like it's little Mm. nuances, I guess, like that, that she can't see herself reflected in the world around her the same way that I can and nobody is saying to her you don't belong and you are not beautiful it's that it's the subconscious messages on a child I guess and their identity and their growing sense of self and what those messages how they resonate with her and and have influence on that sense of self and identity I think um, I just want to say, like, it's not that people that are fairer don't experience discrimination Mm. or hardship. It's just that the colour of their skin is not one of the things that is making that harder. Mm. How do we talk to our children about race and racism? I think, look, it very much depends on the age of your child. In early childhood, we have a text which is called the anti-bias curriculum and the anti-bias curriculum has four overarching goals that we try and abide by. So the first one is that children have a strong sense of identity and I think that this is really important that, you know, I don't believe that my culture is any more important than anybody else's. 
the people of my father's generation, they were denied their culture for a really long time. And so I would never deny anybody else the right to their culture. We all have the right to feel good about who we are and where we're from. And we know that children that don't have a positive sense of self, particularly when they do reach primary school age, they're the ones that are projecting those feelings onto other children and they become bullies. So developing a, a you know, a healthy self-esteem is really important. Yep. Then the second one is having respect for diversity and having accurate language to, you know, describe diversity. So uh, some of my family, they live up on the coast and it's, you know, where I grew up in Sydney, it's, you know, really multicultural. Like I went to school with majority Asian students. So that's not unusual for me to see lots of religions, lots of different dress, lots of languages where they are there was only one Chinese child attending the school and that Chinese child was adopted. So their experiences and their exposure to diversity and difference is, you know, very different to what I was growing up in. And sometimes for families, it's not what you do, it's what you don't do. So, you know, my niece, she's about to go into year seven and she'll use words like, you know, lebo. And, you know, I said to my brother, if she was running around and using the word abo, I would have a problem with that. Like mm, that's yeah. not accurate language to describe diversity and difference. So, you know, even if the children in your classroom are completely homogenous, you know, and they're the same culture, the same religion and so forth, you know, that's even more so of a reason to expose them to diversity because if we want children to thrive, they have to have strong footing in their culture mm. and they have to feel good about who they are and feel comfortable and confident when they are around people that are different from them and not feel threatened by difference. The third goal is to stand up and take, oh, is to be able to identify what racism is, what discrimination is. So what does that sound like? What does that look like? What does unfairness look like? And then the fourth one is to stand up and take action. So when you see something happening that is unfair or someone's being excluded or being treated unfairly, what can you do and what can you say? So what are the strategies that work? And so we use these with all aspects of diversity, not just in reference to Aboriginality. We look at this with sexuality and gender, language, religion, etc. because we can't decompartmentalise our culture. There are many things that shape a person's cultural identity and your, you know, cultural heritage is, you know, your ethnicity is just one part of that. But I think it's, for me, I think it's, you know, for, for families, drawing children's attention to these unfairness and pointing out that that's not okay and giving them strategies and language and skills and role modelling that to them, that when you see something that's happening that's not okay, what are you doing about that in front of your child? Because they're watching you. Mm. I have been yeah. conscious of uh, the area that I live in is is not multicultural at all. Are there any ways that you think that we can introduce our children to diversity if our area is not diverse? I feel like you, like in reference to Aboriginal culture, you, you'll still be able to have access to that. Aboriginal people are everywhere, yeah. you know. So I think it's about, you know, getting to community events and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. You know, other than that, I think, you know, exposing children to a range of children's books. And yeah. I know I've seen a, a lot of clips lately of parents auditing their children's books in reference to gender stereotypes. You know, they'll go through, you know, how many books have a, a female as in the 
Balkan and how many of the females speak in the book and are they princess stories and are they waiting for a male to come and rescue the princess and all that sort of stuff, you know. So they really go through and order in, in reference to gender and that, that, that sort of thing. I think the same could be said, you know, for Aboriginal culture is that looking at your children's book collections or at your local library and saying, you know, how many of these books uh, dreaming stories where they're traditional aspects of culture. How many of these books represent Aboriginal people as having fair and dark skin? How many of these books show Aboriginal people living in urban and regional areas? Mm. How many of these books, you know, include Aboriginal language to ensure that what you are showing them is a holistic representation? I think that's a good way. I also know that a lot of art galleries, so the Museum of Contemporary Arts, which is in Sydney, they do virtual tours of their gallery when you can watch videos of artists talking and they have ideas of activities that you could be doing at home using those Aboriginal artworks as a provocation. There's a great TV series which you can watch online as well, which is called Little Jane Big Cuz. And this is just like it's an Aboriginal anim- animation um, and there's so much culture that's shared through that. So I think, you know, being intentional and mindful of, you know, what shows your children watching, what, what, what books are they reading, where are you going and spending your time on the weekends as, as a family yeah. and just trying to privilege First Nations culture when you're doing that. My daughter is two and a half and and so I before all of this thought, oh, she's much too young to have these discussions with but I've seen a lot of things that from much earlier than that children and toddlers are starting to notice people's skin colour and their race and that sort of thing. I read something that a good activity to do with little kids is to say have two eggs and one for example has a darker shell and one has a lighter shell and then you show them oh but on the inside they're the same and that's okay that they have different colored shells do you think activities like that are worthwhile or is it better to just be more immersed into the culture I personally don't like that activity but I don't think it's true you know what I mean like I think that we look more alike than what we are on the inside And I think it's our values, our interests and our ideas that make us different and who we are. And I think sometimes that's what often tends to happen with diversity is we talk about, you know, we have different skin and we have different this, but, you know, we're the same. And we don't want to really deflect or distract from the difference to then draw children back to sameness to make them feel safe. We want to get them to a point where it's like you're different and I'm different and that's okay. Mm. I I don't feel compromised at all when I'm around people that are different from me and I see that as being, you know, a strength. So um, I guess that's the issue that I have with books like that. And I also don't believe in teaching about Aboriginal people in our culture in terms of in a preschool context as if we are the topic, the theme or the interest. Instead, what our goal really is in in that way, and maybe there's things that you can take from this and consider in your own homes, is that we look at what children are genuinely interested in. So whether that's dinosaurs, space, princesses and un, or under the sea, and whilst we're holistically programming and considering the different experiences that we can offer via these children's interests we also include an Aboriginal perspective so it's in context to what they're genuinely interested in so we sell a lot of books on our online shop but 
you know, their books about pirates that include an Aboriginal perspective or their books about outer space that include an Aboriginal perspective. And that's really our goal. So Aboriginal children can see themselves reflected in the world around them and not just put in this cultural box. So the idea is, is that when they grow up, if they want to be a doctor, they can visualise themselves there. Or if they want to be a dancer, they can visualise themselves there. Mm. The same way that you know, white children and non-Indigenous children do. So, for example, if the children were interested in dinosaurs, we might talk to children about the megafauna and the big Australian animals that lived here and how those were hunted to extinction by Aboriginal people. They, They ate them, you know, or we might talk about the bunya pine, which is a native Australian tree which, is, which was a prehistoric food for dinosaurs. So we, we try and find... Yeah, that's a brilliant, brilliant way of incorporating it. And I guess it's less easy because you truly have to educate yourself on it to then teach your children. You do. And yeah. I mean, I think this is what educators struggle with. They need to feel confident first in their own knowledge before they feel that they're able to share that with children. So we've created a Facebook group, which is called the Koori Curriculum Educator Community, which your listeners are welcome to join as well. But you'll see there all the time, we'll say, you know, if the children were interested in hospitals, what are some ways that you could include an Aboriginal perspective in the children's interest in hospitals? And you know, um, people will post pictures of different types of bush medicine or photos of Aboriginal doctors or a picture of the local Aboriginal medical service and setups that they've done that really privilege Aboriginal culture in those play spaces and learning experiences. So we work together as a community to resource each other with ideas. Is it standardised across schools in Australia what is taught about Indigenous history and culture? Schools are different. It just depends. What I've noticed is Reconciliation Australia, they released a platform called Narragunawali, which is the Ngunnawal word. Ngunnawal people are down in Canberra. It means alive, well-being and peace. And this is a platform where schools and early learning services can develop reconciliation action plans. So, you know, if this is something that you value as a parent, um, it, it's a good idea to ask your school if they have a reconciliation action plan or the early learning service that you're intending to send your child to so they're aware that this is something that you value, mm. you know, either as an Indigenous parent or a non-Indigenous parent that you want your child to be, you know, taught about. And then there's often opportunities for families to be part of a reconciliation plan action group where you can sort of contribute and come up with ideas or just listen and take part. So we really encourage that. We also, in New South Wales, we have the AECG, which is the Aboriginal Education Consultative Group, and primary schools and early learning services are encouraged to go and attend these meetings because they're the bridge between the school, the early learning service and the local Aboriginal community. And so it's about advocating as a parent and asking, you know, is our school part of the local AECG? You know, making sure that they, you know, are understanding that you're advocating that you really want this to be encouraged in your school's curriculums. Mm. Do you think it's something that should be nationwide more a part of the curriculum? Yeah, well, I think this is the thing is that it, it is there, but how much of it is taught is the, the issue. So in um, early childhood, we have the early years learning framework and it is part of our outcomes for that. And so we're lucky that it is no longer seen as an optional 
extra, you are required to do this work. That's not how you want your educators to come to the table. You have to do it. You want them to intrinsically understand the importance. But I know that, as I said, like in year four, I think it is, they do Australian history, but I think it, it is at the discretion of their teacher how much of that is Indigenous Australian history because we all know white Australia has a black history, but I feel like it almost is just sort of tacked on top. I, I don't want to say that I, I'm not a primary teacher and so I don't know enough. I think that there are more educators who are becoming more informed and really advocating and taking steps in their curriculum to ensure that Aboriginal history is privileged in their program. But I still think that until there's more stricter guidelines around how much and perhaps it needs to be in an Indigenous studies subject as you're suggesting instead of just included in a lesson plan here and there it needs to be separate. Yeah and I guess even if you make it even more mandatory curriculum as you say it, it totally depends the way that it's taught the message that is conveyed anyway. Yeah and I think you know ensuring that educators have the cultural capacity to be able to teach that or schools being required to develop a an elder and residency program so community um, is empowered to have agency over how they share those stories themselves rather than non-Indigenous teachers speaking on behalf of. We've all been in a situation where where you've heard casual racism by a family member brought up. Do you have any tips on how we're best to respond to that? I think those uh, remarks often come up during times like this where, you know, Black Lives Matter has been Mm -hmm. in the news or, you know, around the 26th of January or something like that. We often hear those remarks from, you know, our so-called friends and family. (sighs) When I think, and it's sort of the same approach that I take if it was from a family that that was coming into a a preschool, the family um, is sort of doing that in a heightened state where they're being aggressive and they're looking for a reaction, I don't give them one because I think Mm -hmm. the more that I try and respond to it, no matter what I say, they've got their backs up about it and they're digging their heels in and it's obviously something that's frustrating them. So at that time when that's occurring, I tend to deflect because I've learned over time there's very little you can say in those moments that will change a person's way of thinking Mm that they're going to openly admit it anyway. What I will do is, and normally they say it in sort of like a group setting where there's other people that are listening, you know, not just one-on-one, you know, they're grandstanding a bit. I try and, um, you know, bring it up at another time where it's less emotive and just have general conversations. You know, I read this and what do you think? And I also come prepared with statistics and facts. So I'm not just talking about how I feel and what I think but I know the facts and I know the statistics and they don't. So they can't argue with that. So I think being informed first is important and also being proactive and not reactive. So you already know that you've got family members that think and feel a certain way. Use social media as a way to advocate a different message. Share those statistics in a social post, you know, um, they're probably not going to click on a link and read it, but on a post, if you just pull out a couple of links and put it up or share pictures of you going to cultural events on the weekend or whatever it may be, from where they're subtly seeing these messages. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it is inevitable that you're going to have Grandpa Joe, you know, raising his voice over something. But I read somewhere lately that 
it's important to understand and appreciate different people's perspectives of opinions and not to shut people down for that at the dinner table or wherever you are, but to let them have their say, let them open up about it. And your children will also understand that people will have opinions and they will be different. So it's important, you know, to encourage, I guess, a open understanding of humans. But I guess that's difficult if you feel that their opinion is no, racist. No, I know. But, no, I totally, I totally agree, um, agree that, you know, if, if someone is being racist, but, you know, it's important to understand that from all different ages, people have different opinions because of what they've been through or what they've done. You know, they're, they're, there's always going to be someone or something mm. that is going to be different to how you feel. And you've got to be able to walk away and still feel comfortable with what your thoughts and beliefs are that they're right. When you said about, you know, having the conversation maybe with them later, if your children have been there and heard those remarks, would you also maybe speak to your child privately later and say, oh, this is how I feel about what uncle, whoever, Bobby or auntie, whoever said, so that they don't feel like you think that's a nice way to speak? Um, I think if I had children there, probably the way I would respond to it would be a little bit different. Right. Um, so I think if there were children present, I wouldn't allow the conversation to continue with them sitting there and particularly with me not saying anything. Yeah. So I would probably have to voice that I actually don't agree and that, um, the conversation is making me feel uncomfortable because there are children listening, but I'd be happy to talk with them about it at a different time because I would want my child or the children that I was with to be able to hear that that's how you respond to bias and racism as well, that, you know, because that's a strategy that you're trying to teach them, that you can tell someone really politely and in a calm, unemotive way Mm. that you don't agree. Now's not the time for the conversation, but we can talk about it later. And then you follow it up because by not saying anything you're almost condoning that behaviour in, yeah. in, in front of them. So, um, and then I would talk to them about it later and just say, oh, it wasn't the time to talk about it then with Uncle Harry or whatever, yeah. um, but I am going to talk about it with him later, you know. Yeah, so that, yeah. yeah, great. Thanks for that. What are some books you recommend to ensure children are exposed to inclusivity? Specifically to yeah. um, Aboriginals. Yeah. We actually did a podcast on Educator Yarns which was our top 10 children's books that celebrated Aboriginal perspectives and why. So whether or not you would like to link over to that. How can we approach our Indigenous community to get local knowledge? Is it important that we do not burden people of colour in having to constantly educate us? I think that it probably is important not to see Aboriginal people as, you know, I'm going to, you know, you're on hot seat and I'm just going to call in my black friend to find out what the answer is. I think it can be exhausting. And um, I know for myself, we get message after message after message every day from students to parents to teachers. And it's hard because they, genuinely are trying to do the right thing and they're incredibly enthusiastic but um, the demand for that knowledge is just so great and that's why we sort of developed our Facebook group as a way to try and 
help mediate some of those inquiries because a lot of them were the same inquiries again and again what can we do about blah 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 so just trying to act a little bit work smarter and not harder to do it but I think when that does happen and often when families um, or anyone, you know, attend community events for the first time and they meet their first Aboriginal person, they tend to bombard them with a whole heap of questions and that can be really intimidating and overwhelming for that person. So when we talk about developing relations, a relationship with your local Aboriginal community, we mean just that. So the emphasis is really on building a rapport and you know, having reciprocity and not having sort of an interview where it's like question after question after question. And I think it's also about understanding not all Aboriginal people know the answers. You know, there was a lot of Aboriginal people that have been displaced and, you know, through past acts and therefore their knowledge can be limited. But instead of openly sharing that with you, they can give false or misleading information unintentionally because we refer to it as feeling this feeling of shame where they don't want to openly admit that they don't have yeah. their culture or they don't have those answers and have that knowledge. So I think going really slow is important, but taking active steps yourself. So, you know, there are plenty of podcasts that you can listen to. There are websites that you can research. There is heaps of black literature out there for you to read. Um, there are Facebook groups that you can be that you can be a part of to try and inform yourself with some of those answers as well. And I often tell people to subscribe to um, our fortnightly newspaper, which is our national fortnightly, not mine, but our community's <laughs> fortnightly um, newspaper, which is called the Koori Mail. It's uh, $2.50. It gets delivered to your home because we feel that Aboriginal people aren't accurately or holistically represented in mainstream media. We refer to it as the bad, the mad and the sad. So to really be informed about current affairs and issues and programs and community events and things that are happening, like the good and the bad and things that are being written by Aboriginal people for Aboriginal people, I would suggest reading that newspaper and that's a really cheap way. Yeah. 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 If I were to put myself in those shoes, I would be confronted if someone came up to me the first time I met them and was asking me to delve into, you know, my family's past when you don't know them from a bar of soap soap and all of a sudden they're going, hello, tell me all your past traumas. That's, that's, yeah, that would be very, very confronting if you flip it the other way around. Yeah. As a parent, what should we say if our child comments on someone's ethnicity in public? For example, if my child sees a person of colour and says they have chocolate-coloured skin, is that racist? I don't think it's racist because they're making an observation about skin colour and the colour of skin colour. They're not saying that it's – they're not commenting on it in a derogative way. But what we always say when children talk about diversity or difference is that you respond immediately. So I always use the scenario, right? Imagine you're in line at the supermarket with your child and in front of you is a a large overweight lady and your child says to you, Mm. mom, how come she's fat loud enough for the lady in front of you to hear? And like your knee jerk reaction or even if she did, said didn't say you know how come she's such that how come she's big your knee-jerk reaction is to say shh yeah right because you don't want to embarrass or upset or offend anybody however for your child who maybe is only three or four mm. 
And we know that they're asking these questions all the time. How come they're tall? How come they've got short hair? How come they've got blue eyes? You know, they're, that that's developmentally where they're at. So by you saying, shh, you've told them that there's something wrong with that yeah. observation by your response. So you need to respond immediately. You need to respond simply. You need to respond authentically. And then you need to follow up. So... You give a simple explanation, you know, well, people come in all different body sizes. Some people are tall, short, large or smaller. And often a person's body can look the same as their mummy or daddy. You can say, look, I've got brown hair and that's why you've got brown hair or I'm short and that's why you're short or whatever it could be. And so you just give a simple like explanation, you know, and then after the fact, and it's an honest explanation, and then after the fact, you know, you follow up by, you know, there's heaps of body positivity books that are out there now that talk about yeah. bodies in, you know, a more, you know, after the fact. So I think those are the sort of steps that we tend to follow when children are noticing and talking about um, difference. Great. Well, thank you for that because I feel like I would have wanted to run out of the shop. <laughs> oh, everyone would. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you've got to fight those instincts. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> What's your thoughts? Can allies wear Indigenous print clothing? Yeah, they can. So I actually, I might be able to flick it to you. I just wrote a fact sheet on how to tell whether a brand is authentic yeah. or not. And, you know, a couple of recommendations of different Aboriginal fashion labels and so forth. So I can send that to you so you can attach it as a link for your listeners if you like. I think it depends on what the label says. So there are some which are, you know, clearly for mobs. So I've just bought a shirt the other day that says straight out of Wiradjuri. If you weren't an Aboriginal person, like you could live in Dubbo, but if you weren't a Wiradjuri person, yes. it probably isn't appropriate for you to wear. But there are other ones which are, you know, fine, just general sayings, which are, you know, like always was, always will be, is this his theme for NAIDOC week? And that's yeah. a fine shirt for non-Indigenous people to wear. I think, you know, when you, it's sort of like why a lot of people buy Australian made or shop local because you're supporting Aboriginal businesses and that self-determination, which is really important. But there is a lot of fake Aboriginal art and there are a lot of non-Indigenous companies that produce Aboriginal-designed fashion. So I think it's important in those instances to make sure that they're ethical and reputable. And particularly there's a lot of issues at the moment regarding having the Aboriginal flag on fashion mm. so I'm not sure if your listeners are aware but the Aboriginal flag is privately copyrighted to well it was to Harold Thomas who was the man that designed it and he sold the copyright to Wham Clothing which is a non-Indigenous company and they've you know asked Aboriginal fashion labels that produce the flag on clothing to cease and desist doing that and they have to pay exorbitant fees to be able to use our flag on fashion so there's a whole heap of issues with having the Aboriginal flag privately copyrighted. We're the only flag in the world that is privately copyrighted and to avoid people and non-Indigenous fashion company. So um, there's a, a group which is called Clothing the Gap and you can read a little bit more about how they're trying to battle that. So I would just sort of defer from wearing any clothes that have the Aboriginal flag on it at the moment because they're supporting a non-Indigenous fashion label, which right. is, you know, ruining Aboriginal businesses that are trying to produce their own fashion and clothing. That's unbelievable. 
Yeah. How do you help your interracial kids as a white mother, especially with bullying? I think you probably, I mean, I think that's probably a conversation that has a bit of personal context. I think it's hard if you're a white mother with biracial children and, you know, potentially the children are darker and their their father or their other parent isn't in the picture. I mean, the, the thing should be is that you're trying to keep children connected with both of their cultures, which is something that, you know, is, it can be easy or hard depending on the context. So I think you, it's really about trying to foster children's cultural identity so they have a sense of pride and they feel strong and confident in their identity is really important, making sure that you've got books and toys and things in your home that reflect that cultural diversity that further support that. I think also talking to the school and letting them know about any bullying and, you know, telling them that you're expecting that they're doing the same, that they're also teaching children about respect for diversity and inclusion and giving your children tips on how to respond to bullying about that but I think that needs to be and you know to the child who's bullying their parents I mean there needs to be a a collective approach from all the stakeholders you know both children's families and the school to ensure that matters like that are sort of addressed. Mm. I have quite dark hair and olive skin I'm a quarter Chinese and my daughter is blonde fair with blue eyes and I actually get quite surprised how often in public people are shocked that she is my child. So I I, I do actually see how the other way around, probably how often it does come up because I've been asked in the playground before if I'm her nanny, you know, if she's actually mine, how does your child look like that? So I can... And even even my husband isn't that fair. So we've, you know, people have interrogated us. How on earth does your child look like that if you two look like this? So I can imagine that for mothers of biracial children, it, it would it would come up a lot. Mm. Yeah. That's all our questions for today. But did you have anything else you wanted to add to add to the discussion at this point? You've covered so much. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I feel like we've talked heaps, but. I think it's great that your listeners are obviously really interested and that if anything for them that has come out of like this recent, you know, Black Lives Matter movement is that they're wanting to be the catalyst for them to want to learn more. I think it's, it can be a quite vulnerable and challenging process for anyone when they're trying to unlearn some of the false, you know, rhetoric that they were taught during their schooling and relearn. So I think it's being open to unlearning and relearning and, understanding that we're you know we're always got new knowledge that's coming out so it's a journey where you're continuing continuing to build on your own cultural capacity and understanding and pass that on to your children to be socially just informed it's a really great thing so thanks for having me on and I hope um, the info has been useful thanks thank you so much thanks for listening to this episode of beyond the bump if you enjoyed it please subscribe and give us a review if you didn't good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.